standing, we're going to read a little bit from God's Word together. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 and reading to verse 6. And when we come to an underlined portion, like last week, I'd encourage you to read along with me. So here we go, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we find ourselves, we've been wandering together with Israel in the wilderness, right? We've come now through the plagues. They've rescued out of Egypt. They've been through all sorts of ups and downs. And now they're here at Mount Sinai. And we're sort of slowing down as we come to Mount Sinai and as we look at the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the big one, right? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now we come to commandment number two, and we might be tempted to go, okay, I was following you with number one, God, right? You should be number one. I got you, but graven images, what am I supposed to do with this? You might think to yourself, is God (laughs) anti-art? Is God just like against statues and carvings? And what, what is going on here? Why does this commandment matter at all, much less being number two? On the list. Well, first, let me tell you, God certainly does love art. In fact, God is an artist. Have you been outside (laughs) at any point, right? God has created an incredible world. But the second commandment matters because how we worship is second only to who we worship. That how we worship God impacts our view of God. Doxology impacts theology. In other words, if what we believe trickles down into every area of our life, then our worship and how we worship also trickles down into every area of life. So last week we saw the first commandment taught us that worship is foundational for all of life. And the second commandment answers the question, how then should we worship? In other words, it isn't simply enough to worship the right God. We need to worship the right God the right way, right? The way that he would have us to worship him. And the second commandment seems pretty clear on first reading. You're like, okay, I get it. I'm looking around and I don't see any graven images or statues of of God anywhere, right? But this is actually not a a commandment. This is a commandment that's not without some controversy, (laughs) Not only in church history, but we'll get uh, to some controversial issues later on with this to where Christians may have some varying opinions, and that's okay, right? I don't know any family gatherings you've been to where people don't have some disagreements now and again, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with what I think is abundantly clear about the second commandment, work to some things that I think, for the most part, would be pretty clear Uh, for us. And then probably when we get toward the end, come to some things that folks may feel a little bit different about, and that's okay. It'll make for some good lunch conversation down the road. So let's start with what we know. Basically, everybody you'll read on the second commandment agrees that this commandment first forbids the worship of any false gods. The second commandment forbids the worship of any false gods, right? The people of God should worship Yahweh, the one true God, and not the gods of the nations. And in the days of the Exodus, most of the gods of the nations had images. You could go and you could bow down to a statue of them, and that statue literally represented their presence. And these 
idols were both at times figments of people's imagination, but they also can be demons. We've got to understand demons can show up and be places. And, and he pictures worship, Exodus 20 does, as bowing down to God alone and not to the idols of the nations. We should worship God because he is the one true God rather than the false gods of the nations. And there's a great illustration of this in one of my favorite passages in the Bible where the prophet uh, Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal or Baal, right? Baal is sort of the biggest and greatest enemy that the people of God face, particularly in the later books, 1st, 2nd Kings and things like that. And Elijah by himself goes up against 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah is a kind of confident guy. You'll come to learn that about him if you read about his life. He says, I got a challenge for you prophets of Baal. He said, let's both take two bulls, let's set up sacrifices, and let's call on our various gods to answer, to send fire from heaven, and let's see who wins. So he's in for a challenge here, right? Elijah even gives them a head start. And the 450 prophets of Baal, I guess they come together and they probably form a committee and they start to have this thing, they work this out, right? And they prepare the bull, they've got everything ready, and they cry out. And there was no voice, and there was no fire. And I love Elijah's response. Look at this. So they started in the morning, and here's what Elijah says. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. He says, friends... Your God, maybe he's taken a nap, or maybe he needed a potty break. <laughs> and so he's exposing sort of the foolishness, right, of, of idolatry, and particularly of trying to make an image of God, because here's the thing, God is not like us. He says, here's the point they needed to understand. God is not like a man that he should sleep, that he needs to eat, that he gets busy. He never has too many things on his plate. And friends, he certainly has never needed a potty break. And then Elijah draws the people in, prepares the altar, the sacrifice. He even pours a whole bunch of water on it to go, man, I'm going to make this even harder on me for this sacrifice to burn. The place is drenched. And here's what Elijah prays. At the time of the offering of the ablation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is an illustration of what the second commandment is telling us, right? There is only one true God. And he alone is worthy of our worship, not the idols of the nations. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go get in a challenge with some false prophets this weekend. Because, friends, Elijah was certainly a prophet, and we're certainly to be careful not to put the Lord our God to the test. But we must be mindful, friends, that there are there is a real temptation toward idolatry in our life. It might not look quite like a statue of Baal, but it can look a little like this, like this. <laughs> That's right, it can look like all kinds of things, right? And friends, sometimes these, these things can be figments of our imagination, and they can also be demonic principalities and powers. Idols can be both. They can be behind spiritually mundane things. And friends, they can even do miraculous things for you. Friends, we need to be mindful that false worship is everywhere. And it always begins usually very subtle. Most people don't become prophets of Baal overnight. 
And no matter how strong or appealing idols may appear, the one true God is the one we're to worship. Look what Psalm 96 verse 5 says. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know what didn't make the heavens? Apple. You know who didn't make the heavens? The prophets of Baal. And the prophets here in, in a First Kings end up slaughtered for leading the nation of Israel into false worship and false living. Because if you start with the wrong God and you continue with, the fault, with false worship practices, it will trickle down into the rest of your life. It all starts at the top. The second commandment forbids the worship of false gods made by human hands. But... I think it even goes a little further than that. And here's where it could be a little controversial, and that's okay. I don't simply believe the second commandment is a repeat of the first. That, okay, only worship God and don't worship other gods. Here's the second point I think we need to see. The second commandment also forbids the worship of the one true God with images. It forbids the worship of the one true God with images. Images. Notice God himself is telling us here how he would like to be worshipped. We need to worship the right God. And we also need to worship the right God the right way. In fact, consider this. In the first six centuries, that 600 years of the Christian church, including the first century, the church by and large did not use images in their worship. Because they knew that's how the pagans worshipped. They drew a picture and they could build a little statue and carry their god around in their arm. They could keep him in the back seat of their car. He could be in a convenient place in their life. And they also could leave him there and go do what they wanted. Because, well, God's in the back seat. I'm going to go in the store and do what I want. And friends, it set Christians apart. Remember last week we met the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill. And the pagans that were there at Mars Hill, they were some very superstitious people, but they were also some of the most welcoming and affirming people you'll ever want to meet, right? They had an idol. Every idol that ever showed up, they built a statue to. They even made sure they had their bases covered by building an idol to an unknown god, just in case they missed one. They want to have all their bases covered. And the Apostle Paul preaches to these people. And look what he says. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, he says, God is not like the idols. He cannot be captured in images no matter how creative we are, no matter how great our mind is, God is simply too incomprehensible for us to fully fathom. God forbids the worship of himself with images. And you may ask, why? What's so wrong about this? The scripture offers a variety of reasons, and I started the week with like 15 to 20 points. But I settled in on six to give you some thoughts for the day, and if you want the whole list, I probably could get it to you later if you're curious. Well, let's start with number one. First, we don't make images of God because they diminish the greatness of God. We're not to make images of God because they diminish the greatness of God. In other words, friends, God is not like these pagan idols. We can't just carry them, carrying them around. We can't contain him in our imaginations. He's too great to be captured in gold or silver or stone because God is not like us. Here's the point. Idolatry is always trying to bring the God of heaven down to be like a created thing here on earth. That's what idolatry is always is. Here's what 1 Timothy 1.17 says. This is great. Look at this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know who we aren't? The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And we are certainly not worthy of the honor and glory that he is due forever. 
They simply cannot, he cannot be carried around, he cannot be controlled, he is unseen, invisible, immortal, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, and absolutely sovereign. Try to draw that, (laughs) right? Try to make a statue that can depict any of that. The second commandment is there because God is simply too great to be pictured, and images diminish the greatness of God. And at the end of the second commandment, we're told that God is deeply concerned about his greatness. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Look at this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Let let me just say those two words encompass all of worship. Don't think he's saying, okay, you you can't bow down to them and you can't serve them, but you could kiss an idol, right? There are people that have made arguments like that. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. He's encompassing worshiping them or living your life for them. And he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, often we think of jealousy as a bad thing, and it can be, right? There can be petty jealousy or jealousy over something that you don't have a right to be concerned about. But friends, jealousy is ultimately rooted in love. Jealousy is ultimately rooted in love. And often the way I would probably illustrate, hey, you know, is jealousy good or bad is, hey, let me borrow your wallet. I'll bring it back. I've yet to have a person just hand it to me and think I'm going to bring it back, right? Because they're very concerned about what's in said wallet, right? There's love and attachment there, and that's good. I wouldn't let some random person, even the pastor, just run around, with my stuff, right? It reveals what we love, and spouses understand this. Those you love, you have a jealousy for. And God, and and especially if there's any attempts to take them away or deceive them. And friends, God has loved his people. He's redeemed them. We saw in Exodus 19 a few weeks ago, they're his treasured possession, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. Friends, God is jealous like a father should be for children that are in danger. Dads, you lock your doors and you put the shotgun by the bed because you're jealous. Nobody's getting in there and getting your kids, and getting your wife, right? Or he's like a husband when the wife is threatened. Friends, you guys understand what I'm talking about. This comes from God's deep concern for his own glory, and also his love and concern for his people. But hear this, idols are never jealous. I have yet to meet a piece of rock people are bowing down to that really cared what they did when they were out of his presence. Most idols almost always will tell you, do what you want. Go be happy. Go do you. Chase your dreams. Follow your hearts. But friends, our God in heaven desires our good. Idols almost always are affirming enemies who desire our destruction. Beware. Beware. So we are not to make graven images and worship God with images because they diminish his greatness. This brings us to the second point. We're not to make images of God because second, idolatry is dangerous. Friends, idolatry is dangerous. We saw this in our opening reading this morning. I love that. Psalm 115. Look at this. He's talking about the idols of the people. They're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. Hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. And see this, those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Friends, he says, idolatry makes you blind makes you dumb, and makes you mute. (laughs) It has a real impact. Idolatry is dangerous because you become like what you worship. That's important for us to realize. Worship will always conform and transform you. And friends, thus, if you worship a dumb idol, you become like it. Idolatry is dangerous. And idolatry brings about the wrath of the one true God. Look again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Look at this. 
Don't bow down to them or serve them. For, the, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice, he puts idolatry over with those who hate him. Notice he, he does that. And then he talks about a warning of visiting iniquity on the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. This isn't teaching some sort of generational curses or God punishing innocent children for the crimes of the father. No, his warning is that idolatry is a sin that is contagious. Friends, what begins in one generation, sometimes, friends, and y'all know this, may take three or four generations before it's fully worked out. What began as compromise in generation one becomes full-on embrace and affirmation of three or four generations down the road. Just consider this. In the book of 2 Kings, there's a great example of this. And if you've ever read First and 2 Kings, you get a cycle of godly kings, then wicked kings. You get the ups and downs, the nations, idolatrous, then they're repentant, back and forth, back and forth. And we encounter a man in Hezekiah one of the great reformers of Israel. The nation had fallen into disobedience, and here's one of Hezekiah's great accomplishments. This is 2 Kings 18.4. Look at this. He, being Hezekiah, removed the high places, broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. So that was sort of the idol of the people. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offering to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Friends, see this. Moses, in the book of Numbers, we'll get there, right? We'll get there. But in the book of Numbers, he saves the people by holding up a bronze serpent. And they look to this serpent. You can read about that later if you want. Numbers chapter 21 God gave them a good thing. They hang on. They hung on to it. Friends, followers, followers of Jesus have never been known to hang on to things for long periods of time beyond what they're useful for, right? They hang on to it like a relic, and a good thing became a God thing and thus became a bad thing. Friends, they held on to the serpent, and they began to worship it. We would never know people who worshiped things of the past, would we? That's never been a temptation for followers of God, right? To have certain things, and, and particularly they're almost always objects that we associate with a great work of God that we hang on to way past their usefulness and start to almost give sacrifice and homage to. But see the dangers of idolatry. It's a reality in our life, and it is contagious even generations down the road. Those who hung on to this bronze serpent may have thought they were doing God's work. But future generations used it to forsake God's word. Idolatry is a very sneaky sin, friends. It can come in and begin as something good. And even do something good that can be twisted in further generations. Idolatry is dangerous. It's contagious. And it carries forward to future generations. And friends, it only gains ground until it's broken. And idolatry always will eventually push God out of the picture. A little dough works through the whole lump. Idolatry ultimately produces people who hate God and who end up going against who God is. Again, I can imagine the meeting. We're like, I think we should hang on to this serpent. This is a good thing to remember. Then way down the road, they never imagined that their grandchildren or great-grandchildren would be bowing down and offering sacrifices to it because they long to get back to better days, to the golden days that really weren't all that good <laughs> in the moment, were they? Friends, we aren't to make images of God because idolatry is a dangerous thing. What might even seem like a good thing can become a bad thing down the road. Third, we aren't to make images of God because third, God cannot be seen. We've talked about this a little bit already, but just consider it. Even as the people are here at the base of the mountain and God is speaking to Moses, they're not seeing him. In fact, God actually never appears to the people in the Old Testament except in visions. 
His divinity is never seen by human eye. We're even told that it's impossible to see God. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is sort of the, the second giving of the law and God's reflections on some of the stuff that happened in the book of Exodus, we get a reflection on this moment at Mount Sinai. And here's what we see. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. And you came near the people. You stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his voice, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So here's the point. Even the people here receiving the Ten Commandments don't get to see God. He can't be drawn or sculpted because God is spirit. An infinite, invisible, unseen creator. He isn't like us, who is visible and fallen and finite creation. Jesus even affirms, it's over in the New Testament, he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well, right? Luke, or John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see it? The essence of who God is drove how we are to worship him. God is spirit, therefore it says, hey, worship him in spirit and truth. Who God is informs how we are to approach him. So God cannot and must not be represented by images. He's invisible, immortal, the only true God. How do you make an image of the invisible? Just hold up a blank sheet of paper? He's there, I promise. But that doesn't mean just because God's not seen that we can't know who God is. We live in such a world that's so reliant on sight for everything. We, we act like we can't believe anything we don't see. And friends, I can't really see the internet working, but it's there. I don't see a lot of things that are going on, but I know they're there. And in fact, God has given us a perfect guide to know who he is, and it's embedded right in this commandment. And right in the fourth reality. Fourth, we're not to make images of God because God has spoken. God has spoken. Rather than approach God or know him primarily in images or experiences, we know him through the word. They saw no form, but they heard a voice. Notice, God didn't sculpt a statue, but he did write a book. Let the Ten Commandments be a lesson. God speaks to his people. And while he's going to give commandments later in the book of Exodus when they build the tabernacle, there's going to be art in the tabernacle, which is good and fine. Not a single one of those statues ever represent God. Nor do they somehow mediate God's presence to bring them near him. Nor were they primarily meant to teach something different than what the word of God already said. See, it's not that God is anti-art. Because again, I think God's a great artist and loves art. But he wants us to be careful not to allow art and worship so that what he has said might not be misconstrued. You ever gone to those, you ever gone to an art gallery? I've gone to a few and you look at something and you see the title of it and I'm like, I have no idea what that is. And you get this kind of wild artist's interpretation, and I'm like, okay, I would have never got that in a hundred years, right? Friends, you can show even images of Jesus dying on a cross and even him rising up out of the grave, but for someone to place their faith in him, you still need to explain it. What does that mean? What did he do for you? That's something art can't do, but words can. The word is meant to explain the truth of the gospel. The hope is that God's word would be clearly heard and obeyed rather than seen in images and often forgotten. Think of how many images we see just scrolling through Instagram, right? Friends, how many of those do I remember? 
None. <laughs> I sometimes see the same post a second time and show my wife, and she's like, you showed me that three hours ago. I'm like, oh, I thought it was funny still, right? <laughs> Friends, we're prone to forget what we see. And so we need to make sure God's word is obeyed because images can be forgotten. Images often can draw our, our mind away from the word. So we've got to be careful. This is actually something you can test in church history. You can go read some books on this if you're curious. But starting around the 7th century, images really began to be popular in churches and things. And you'll notice beginning around the 7th century, as images increased, fidelity to God's word decreased. And we had an event some 700 years after that called the Reformation for a reason, right? People had begun to think they could know God perfectly through drawings on a wall, but they never actually had access to the word of God themselves. Friends, reliance on images typically leads to a rejection of God's word. And if you're going to begin to compromise on commandment number two, why not the others, right? Friends, God has spoken about how he desires to be approached and worshipped. And in fact, God has told us that he actually has put images of himself in the world. Fifth, we're not to make images of God because God made mankind in his image. Friends, Genesis chapter 1, right? Look at this, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God made man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Notice, he says, mankind is made in the image and likeness of God. Both words, both the exact same words used in Exodus chapter 20 in the second commandment. If you ever wondered why you exist, God says, I put you here to be my image in the world, to reflect what I'm like. And we all know this, an image, a photograph, whatever it is, can never capture the full reality of the thing being captured, but it, it certainly can represent it. And mankind was put on earth to represent what God is like to the world. And to ultimately bear God's authority and stewardship over the world. Let me illustrate this with an encounter Jesus had about taxes. Do you know Jesus talked about taxes? <laughs> Matthew, you can read about this in Matthew chapter 25. But someone comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, should I pay taxes to Caesar? And he holds up a coin, probably pulls it out of his little wallet, whatever he had, right? And he holds up and says, whose likeness and image is on this? And they go, well, Caesar. Caesar had his face on the money the way we've got George Washington and Abe Lincoln on our money, right? In other words, he's asking not about literally, he's not necessarily concerned about the face on it, but his point is, who does this belong to and whose authority rests in it? And he says, hey, mankind, I have given you dominion and authority to represent me to the world. That's what we were created for. And praise God, he gave us dominion over the fish and over the chickens and over all these things. So friends, one, good news, that's why we can eat them. Praise God, right? But the fundamental problem is that none of us image God the way he desires us to. That's the fundamental human problem. That's what sin ultimately is. From the beginning with Adam, we sinned, we failed to represent our creator, and instead we live for ourselves. Sin caused us to make God in our image and ultimately to serve ourselves. Sin causes us to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to serve the created rather than the creator. We have cut ourselves off from God in our sin. And that's why we can never save ourselves. And we're always seeking after something. We're like, man, if I just make a little bit more money, then I'll be good. If I just get that person to like me, then I'll be good. If I just get that promotion or I just get this or that, then I've made it. 
Friends, we're so wanting to have the created things, we forget the one who created them. And we cut off God from our lives. We never fully lose the image of God within us, but we can corrupt it and not represent him as we ought. And this is why we need a perfect image bearer to come. We need somebody who can come and and do what Adam and we have failed to do to live in our place and restore us back to God. And friends, I got good news. There actually was someone who did that. Sixth, here's our final sort of sub-point underneath this. Six, we're not to make images of God because Jesus is the perfect image of God. Jesus, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Let me show you this. Book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see it? He's the image, what you can see, what you could touch, what you could know of the invisible God. John chapter 1 puts it this way. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He, being Jesus, has made him known. Literally, he's opened him up. He's clearly displayed who he is and what he is about. Jesus echoes this later in his ministry. He says this, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Here's the point. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has perfectly shown us what the Father is like. He has perfectly lived as, a, as Adam and we have failed to do, he lived a sinless life. He perfectly represented God to the world in our place so that fallen image bearers might be forgiven and restored to our creator. And notice that him living as the perfect image of God got him crucified. Where there he bore our sins upon himself and he rose again from the dead so that through faith, image bearers might properly be able to bear the image of God again. There's a cool thing here in Exodus chapter 20. Look at this. Idolatry is contagious, right? He says, hey, I'm going to punish this to the third or fourth generation because it's contagious. It'll carry on through the generations. But see that the love of God triumphs over idolatry. Look at chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, the love of God is literally a thousand times greater than his wrath. (laughs) And it uses the Hebrew, the, his hesed, his covenant love that's better than anything else. The psalmist says that God's steadfast love is better than life itself. And he puts on one side the idolaters, those who hate him. But then he says those who experience his covenant love, who love and keep his commandments. In other words, those who trust him and he redeemed them out of slavery to Egypt, experiencing his covenant love and mercy and grace. We need to see that law like this is never an expression of God's anger. He's not here to kill our joy, but it flows from love. He cares so much about us that he's told us not only that we can approach him, but how we are to approach him. We don't have to figure this all out. You ever remember when you maybe were new in a relationship or new to a school and you got to kind of figure the other people around you out a little bit? God's like, hey, I wrote a book for you. (laughs) I told you exactly what I want, exactly how I am. And if you want evidence of the incredible love of God, again, just consider Jesus. (laughs) Consider that God himself came to dwell among us to be rejected by the people who longed the most for his coming, to be hung upon a cross and there to bear the weight of our sin 
to be punished in our place for our idolatry and to be buried and to rise again on the third day so that any and all can come to faith and come to know God and experience his love and his mercy and his friendship and his relationship with him. See the incredible love of God. Now, as I come to the end of a sermon on the second commandment, there's, gonna, there's always a ton of questions that I'll get, I'm sure. I'll probably get, some of y'all will probably wait and message me later. What about this? What about that? And most of these typically don't revolve around images of the Father, but they're typically a, what do I do with images of Jesus? If you didn't know, there's lots of popular shows and things out there you can get that portray Jesus, Right? And there's also lots of uh, even children's content that has pictures of Jesus in it. So what are you supposed to do with that? So here's the question. Last thing we'll look at. What about images of Jesus for instruction or entertainment? Right? We don't have a big picture of Jesus that I know of. If you found it, let me know. We don't have a big picture of Jesus anywhere in this church that we bow down to. Right? Because the image isn't him. Right? And if we ever do add that, please paint over it destroy it, whatever you want to do, right? I'm giving you permission now if there's ever a big image of Jesus here on a wall. But we're not going to be bowing down to it. What about for images, uh, for instruction, or for entertainment? Here's, here's my two cents, and you can take it. I think there's some area of Christian freedom on some of this a little bit because technically the second commandment doesn't talk anything about instruction or entertainment. They, they didn't have Netflix back in the desert, I didn't know if you knew that, but at one time, people didn't have Netflix, right? So while it doesn't directly address this, each Christian conscience needs to be convinced in their own mind. But I do want to give three warnings, three things to be careful of when it comes to images of God, whether, again, in, in instruction or when it comes to images of God, when it comes to entertainment. I think these three warnings will kind of tie the message together. So when we're asking about this, what, and, and we don't want to, want to cross the line into breaking the second commandment, here's the three things we need to realize. First, we need to beware of the idolatrous human heart. We need to beware of the idolatrous human heart. The great reformer John Calvin said that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. He just wants you to imagine like a conveyor belt with just idols. We are prone to this. And we don't even have to look far in the book of Exodus. While Moses is up on the mountain, as he's receiving the word of God, the people are at the base of the mountain. They've heard all this, and the people begin to commit idolatry. You can look over in Exodus chapter 32. And let me show you this. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, dad's not back from the store yet. Obviously, the worst has happened, right? The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man he brought you up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron, this is the high priest, said to the people, Take off the rings of gold that are in your, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before them. Aaron was resourceful. He was ready. And Aaron made a proclamation said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And here's how God summarized what they did in verse 8. God speaks to Moses and he says, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How quickly the people turned aside. They made a golden calf. Think about this. When they were at the Passover, God saved them through the slaughtering of a calf. 
right? Through the slaughtering of these young animals. And so now the people mistook what God used to redeem them for God himself. They said, we're going to fashion this image. I don't think, I think we're prone to think ancient people were stupid. I don't think they literally think this calf is God. I don't think that's what's going on in their mind. I think they're thinking, hey, the last time God was with us, we had these, these animals. Let's make a golden one, and maybe we can mediate God's presence. They kind of had this sort of super superstitious, this image has certain blessings on it, and they were trying to receive God's blessing and salvation through their own works and imagination and creation trying to mediate the holy God through works of their own hand rather than by grace alone. And friends, we need to be careful because we can often do this. We can fall into this temptation as the people in the wilderness did. Paul gives this warning to New Testament believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at this. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There he quotes Exodus 32. Then he says, verse 11. Now these things happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, be careful. You can fall in to feeling like you need to have a certain image with you in order to believe God's power is with you. But he says, no, God has put his power in his spirit and his word. He's faithful and he's provided a way of escape for you. And that his word and his spirit are the way to escape, not certain images that might mediate his presence or his blessing. This is the second thing we need to recognize. The second warning here. Be careful. We need to recognize that the scripture is sufficient. Man's imagination can be superficial. Understand that. That just because someone seeks to put something from the Bible into instruction or entertainment and to use images doesn't mean that they necessarily are doing it in the right way. And this isn't to say that we never use our imagination. I hope you use your imagination when you're reading the Bible. It's a God-given blessing, but it is an insufficient source to understand God by itself. And actually, friends, by itself, the imagination can be a dangerous thing. Friends, we are prone to rather make God in our image than to live as God's images. We're rather to say, I can't imagine a God who's like, and we are prone to say that God, we get to define you. We get to stand over your word and tell you who you are. Images make us the gods. And it makes us the creator and God the created thing at our whim and under our power. Friends, rather than relying on images, God has given us a perfectly sufficient word. Look over. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Look what he says here. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He, notice it doesn't say the images or the statues that we make or the, the drawings that we do, that those are breathed out by God. But the scripture is. It's what is to be taught, to reprove, to correct, to train, that the scriptures are sufficient to make us complete, equipped for every good work. If images were needed, then 2 Timothy 3 missed it. But God's word is sufficient. Because faith comes by hearing. We walk by faith and not by sight. One of the things I think we're prone to do is, friends, sometimes I think we're prone to watch an episode of The Chosen and put the Bible up on the shelf. Be careful, okay? I'm not saying that you necessarily, if you feel right in your heart, 
watch things like that, that's okay. But friends, don't let this be tossed aside. Don't let that begin to form what you think rather than the word of God forming what you think. Friends, the only people who could have given us an image of God, who actually walked with Jesus, they wrote a book, but they didn't put any pictures in it. At least I haven't found any yet, right? There's some maps in the back, but I've not, not found any images of Jesus in the Gospels that they drew. And friends, even if, again, they had one, we would still need them to explain it to us. It's by the foolishness of the word preached that God brings people to himself to conform us to his image. Because friends, we're not meant to see him now, but one day we will. I want you to consider the words of the apostle Peter. I love this. First Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that by the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with hope and joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, one day you will see him. We'll see him. And in the meantime, between his first and second coming, we live by faith, not by sight. We love him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. One day we're going to have the sight we want, but for now we're meant to walk by faith. And as we await that day, here's the third and final thing we need to make sure we understand. We need to understand that we must worship God as he commands, not as we might prefer. Worship God as he commands, not as we might prefer. God has taken the burden off of us how to, to figure out how to approach him. God has literally told us and directed us, and we're meant to rely on what God says God's his word directs us as to how to live our whole life in a way that's pleasing him. But he also tells us when we come together as a church what we're to do. We're to preach God's word. We're to hear God's word read. We're to pray according to God's word. We're to share the word with one another. We're to sing God's word. And he actually says there is a way to see the word of God in action through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. The ordinances are images, in a sense, of God's gospel. But here's the point. God has given us word-centered worship as we await the day when our faith becomes sight. And God is doing something when we gather together. And we're meant to submit ourselves to God's desires and to God's word, not to our whims or to our desires. Friends, every negative command has a positive spin, right? Every command, so don't have other gods before me is God's way of saying, I am the only thing you truly need. He's the greatest, the number one, and friends, the command to not have graven images is an invitation to worship the right God, but also to worship the one true God in a right way. And I see no better way to respond than to sing to the incomprehensible, invisible, immortal king of the ages and to sing according to his revealed truth as we await the day when our faith shall be sight. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have spoken. And Lord, you, when in the book that you wrote, you didn't leave us images to leave up to our own subjective understandings, but rather you have spoken clearly to your people in a powerful way. Lord, and I ask and pray that, Lord, we would trust your word, trust that you know what's best for us, that we would put our faith not in our own whims and imaginations of what you might be like, but that we might look toward the image of the invisible God to Jesus Christ, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort 
and great joy. That we would, though we don't see you, we love you. That we would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And Lord, that we would worship you as you would desire for us to because you know what's best. That you love us and you care for us. Lord, we come now to sing and to make much of you together. You may ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, you are a stream of purest water. Blessing grows in beauty by your side. From the rising of the sun until the day is done in your word. Oh, Lord, I will abide. I delight in you, I delight in you, like water you satisfy my soul, I delight in you, I delight in you, oh day and night, I delight in you. Keep me from the counsel of the wicked. Keep your light upon the ancient path. Chaff will blow away, and all the flowers fade, but only you and your word will last. I delight in you, I delight in you, like water you satisfy my soul, I delight in you, I delight in you, day and night, I delight in you. Lord, you know my heart is prone to wander. Lord, you know my feet have gone astray. And though my flesh may fail, every sin was nailed to the cross. Now I will sing. I delight in you, I delight in you, like water you satisfy my soul, I delight in you, I delight in you, all day and night, I delight in you. Oh, day and night, I delight in you. Amen. We do delight in the Lord, and we're thankful that he's a God who has spoken, a God who has revealed himself so powerfully to us. And before we close our service, I want to do a special little send-off for a family in our church. They knew I was going to call on them. So, Ronnie and Peyton, can you come up here? We're not going to embarrass you, and I promise nobody would throw things, so. <laughs> Come on up. <laughs> there you go. Well, many of you know this is your all's last week with us, right? So you guys are heading back. And one, if you're able to help them tomorrow, what, around lunchtime? At your all's help. Yeah, well, they're going to have a U-Haul there. And so if you have some free time, they need some heavy lifting. I definitely am going to try to be there, but I'm not sure how much heavy lifting help I'll be. But I'm going to try. Might, you know, we'll see what happens. We might have all the kids lifting stuff, right? But we just, 
Yeah, we, so we just wanted to, one, send them off because we see that the mission continues regardless of where God has placed us, right? So if you feel comfortable, you can come up and lay your hands on them or just stick out your hands from where you are. But I wanted to pray over them and sort of send them off knowing that we're their family, whether they're going to Louisiana or wherever they're going, and I'm sure they'll be back with us at some point. So, all right, let's... Let's pray together, church family. Father God, we thank you so much for the Boulanger family. We thank you for their kids. We thank you for the example they've given of just raising their kids and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, we know that we'll miss them, but we know that you're just at work in their life and in their kids' life. And we just want to pray, Lord, that you would give them opportunities to be rooted and plugged in where you're sending them. And we pray over them the benediction at the end of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, we ask that the Lord would bless them and keep them, make his face shine upon them and be gracious to them. The Lord lift up his countenance upon them and give them peace. Amen. Amen.